and I promise you this tonight, I am going to the Senate to work for all of Georgia. No matter who you cast your vote for in this election, in this moment in American history, Washington has a choice to make. In fact, all of us have a choice to make. Will we continue to divide, distract, and dishonor one another? Or will we love our neighbors as we love ourselves? Will we play political games while real people suffer? Or will we win righteous fights together, standing shoulder to shoulder, for the good of Georgia, for the good of our country? Will we seek to destroy one another as enemies or heed the call towards the common good, building together what Dr. King called the beloved community? I remember my dad in this moment. He used to wake me up every morning at dawn. It was morning, but it was still dark. It's dark right now, but morning comes. And scripture tells us that weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me for today's show is Luke Box. Luke, how are you doing? Well, uh, Senator-elect Warnock uh, was prescient in his uh, warnings of <laughs> challenges in the morning because uh, there have been some challenges today for sure. Yes, he was He was very on time with that speech. Um, also joining us today is Megan Payne. Megan, how are you? I'm as well as can be expected. You know, um, part of me wants to say I'm in shock, but I'm honestly not. I guess it's just pretty jarring to watch that sort of thing unfold today, but we'll get into it. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to get into today. Um, but also joining us today, a good old friend of the pod, John Carolyn. John, welcome back to Peach Pod. Hey, thank you all for having me back. I'm, got, I'm very glad to be back. I wish it was a, a better day for it, but uh, I'm glad to be here so we can talk about this because yeah, John definitely uh, needs to talk and rent some. John, the last time you were here, we took a break from politics to talk about sports. And I kind of do wish we could just talk about Devontae Smith Heisman or it's completely or the deserved. If anyone else would want, I would have been very disappointed. Um, but much more uh, serious and, yes. and somber subjects to yes. discuss today. Um, on today's show, we are going to react to the uh, riots that took place at the U.S. Capitol in Washington today. Um, there was a a large group of Trump supporters who uh, basically invaded the U S Capitol and, and held it hostage for quite some time this afternoon. Um, it was a, it was a truly terrifying scene in Washington. Um, just to note for our listeners, we are recording this on Wednesday evening, January 6th. So this was something that, that happened just this afternoon. It's something that we're still processing, but, but we're going to react to here with you. Um, one piece of somber news, one piece of very good news for Democrats in Georgia, and that is that both Reverend Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff were victorious in their bids for the U.S. Senate, meaning that their two victories uh, are going to allow Democrats to control the U.S. Senate in Washington. They're going to have full control of government once Joe Biden is sworn in as president on January 20th. Um, it was a shocking development. Um, I think something that at least I wasn't willing to let myself believe was something that could happen, um, but also something that you could see coming given all of the work that's been done on the ground to organize this state uh, going back, you know, seven or eight years now. Um, so we're going to get to that, but but I think we should start uh, with this scene in Washington today. It was an incredibly troubling day in Washington as Congress was in session certifying the results of the Electoral College, a mob of people carrying Trump flags and Confederate flags stormed the U.S. Capitol. They forced lawmakers, staff, and the press to hide out in the House gallery. And a few of these insurrectionists even made it onto the floor of the U.S. Senate and into the offices of some lawmakers like House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Uh, Capitol Police were pretty slow to respond to this. It took most of the afternoon to actually clear the Capitol of these people. Um, and it, as of this recording, I believe members of Congress are still kind of holed up in an undisclosed location. Um, I just kind of want to open this up initially for reactions to the scenes that we saw today. This was something that was on TV all afternoon. Um, 
really, I think some of the uh, scariest images of the Trump administration of the Trump era, maybe since uh, the events of, of Charlottesville. Megan, what did you think of what happened today? Well, like I said a minute ago, um, part of my brain wants to be shocked by this because, you know, the imagery is just so jarring and so tumultuous. But at the same time, in the back of my head, this voice keeps grumbling. This has been brewing for years. This has been brewing for years. And it's true. You know, we've seen Trump basically take the American government and twist it into something that's hardly recognizable all while we as Democrats have been fighting to just keep the status quo, much less lose ground. So I think we kind of saw everything finally come to a head today in D.C. when all of the Trump supporters basically turned into rioters. The other thing that was really striking to me is when you had Black Lives Matter approaching the Capitol you had all kinds of paramilitary and military out in force to prevent anything from happening. But today we saw Capitol Police taking selfies with rioters. We saw a lot more gentleness because I assume most of these protesters, I'm sorry, they're not protesters, they're rioters, were white. Like, I I am... Again, not surprised, but incredibly disappointed in this nation and in our leadership and the fact that racism is very clearly alive and well and not enough people are doing things about it. John, what was your reaction to today? I think that uh, something Megan said about shock but not being surprised works really well. It reminds me kind of just of, you know, you're about to get injured in some way. But your body still goes into shock afterwards because it's a shock to the system, even if you are not shocked yourself. Um, I, I don't think any of us can be all that surprised with what happened. We can be surprised at the manner it happened or the, the exact the details about it. But the fact that there are people who are basically don't appear to believe in uh, the, the democratic American system of government uh, as a concept I don't think any of us can be all that surprised by that uh, or, or their actions today. I don't really know where we go from here. I assume some people are going to make comparisons to Nixon because it involves trying to steal an election and say, oh, we might should move ahead uh, like we did with Nixon. We, Gerald Ford came in and pardoned Nixon so that we could leave it all behind us as a country. But I think this is going to be pretty different because with that, the entire Republican Party basically disavowed Richard Nixon once it was clear that Watergate had happened like people were claiming it was and said, yes, this is bad. We'll get him out. We'll get rid of him. And his supporters more or less turned away from him. This is different. People don't think he's done. There, there are plenty of people that don't think Donald Trump's done anything wrong. Uh, that don't think many of the uh, Republican officials that support him are doing anything wrong by doing so. And you couldn't have lived in a world where people thought Watergate was correct and just said, oh, we'll pardon him and move on. So something, so our response has to be different in some way. I'm not sure what exactly that's going to be, if that is immediate impeachment um, or if that is just some sort of some other way of responding. But there needs to be something more than uh, what happened back in the 70s. Yeah, Luke, what seems particularly notable about this, this would have been a horrifying receipt. This would have been a horrifying scene regardless of the circumstances, but this was a riot that took place on the same day that the Senate and the House were in session to certify the results of the Electoral College. Um, many of the people who participated in this were at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue earlier in the day listening to President Trump address his supporters and continue his conspiracy theory-laden claims that the election was stolen from him. And then this appears to have been a direct response to that. And so I, you know, I saw media companies sort of dis discussing how they would refer to these people today. And some of them landed on insurrectionists because it was pretty clear that this was not just a riot. It was meant as political violence. It was meant as an attempt at some kind of a coup. I, I'm happy you, you finally said that, Cal, because that was going to be the first thing that I was going to say about this, is that this was an attempted coup. Was it a smart coup? Was it a coup that had any chance of success? No, 
But like that was the goal. Like you, I I watched the coverage of this all day. I you know hate myself, so I I was watching C-SPAN even before this started, and you know actually saw when the Senate and House sessions got interrupted by these insurrectionists. And I agree. I think that is the best term to use because. While it is incredibly clear that these folks have no idea how the American government works because all they understand is what Donald Trump tells them. Like, that's that's what it was. It was an attempted coup. How do you know it was an attempted coup? Well, before they tried to overthrow the American government, the current president of the United States said they stole the election from you and was blaming his vice president for not stealing the election from him. Uh, and so it's just it's just insane to refer to these people as literally anything else but insurrectionists because that's what they are. Um, so that that being said, I, I would just you know second how incredibly disturbing it is to see you know the United States government be uh, infiltrated by violent insurrectionists this easily. And the fact that the Capitol Police were not prepared for this is a topic that goes way beyond uh, the uh, purview of this program. But the the thing that I think is relevant to this program that I you know I I would I would discuss uh, more is just the fact that I am unshocked by this entirely. The only thing that is shocking to me is that it didn't happen sooner and that as of this moment, only one person has died from it because Donald Trump has been calling for this before he got elected. In 2015, he called for violence. In 2016, he called for violence. In 2017, he called for violence. Guess what he called for in 2018 and 19 and 2020 and now in 2021? He thinks this is okay. He supports this. He is a fan of this. He likes it. He loves them. That was his words. I We love you. And so he, he does not want this to stop. He wants this to continue because he encouraged it. And so I say all that to say, I think that's why we now have two Democratic senators from the uh, formal, formerly deep red state of Georgia is because of the fact that like some states are okay with this. Some people are okay with this. The people of Georgia are not. And I think there are many reasons why Warnock and Ossoff won, but near the top of my list is because the people of Georgia support democracy and they're pretty tired of the Republican Party trying to take it away from them. And we we can get into that further, but that is that those are my you know first reactions to all of this. I have two questions that I just kind of want to pose to the group. One is I've seen a couple of people call the um, insurrectionists also by the name of domestic terrorists. Do we think that's fair? And my second question is, um, is does this count as treason? So I've got an answer for the first one, but my second question is actually legitimate, not rhetorical. So I'm going to go ahead and answer my first question, which is, yes, I think that's fair because they terrorized Capitol Hill and everyone who was on it. But I don't, I, I want to say this counts as treason, right? It feels it's, it, it's a coup, we're pretty sure, does it qualify? I'm not going to speak on the legal side of things. My understanding from a very brief level is probably not, but I don't know. But it's definitely treason in the non-legal definition of the term. Certainly, you are betraying your country. That's what this is. Um, it is a betrayal of what we hold dear, uh, of our system of government, of all of our beliefs, um, that we claim to hold, I don't know how much we actually do hold them, how much we ever have held them that we claim to believe, what we claim to strive for. It's definitely a betrayal of that. So yes, it is uh, treason, at least in a non-legal sense of the term. What do you think of the, the domestic terrorist thing? I think, I, mean, I, I don't know how important the distinction is. It's, they're both bad. They're both terrible. Um, there's probably a legal distinction in there. Again, I'm not going to speak like I know anything about that. Um, but I'm not sure why exactly that matters. I think they convey a pretty similar message. Yeah, I, I agree. It's mostly a difference without a distinction. And there, I mean, there's some legal, you know, niceties we could get into. But, but the way I look at it is like this is criminal behavior. It should be prosecuted. You know, prosecutors can can tell us which which terms you should use. But um, I, I am <clears throat> hoping that you know, to the extent that the supporters of this have referred to Black Lives Matter protesters as rioters and as Antifa and all these other horrible terms that when there is pretty indisputable evidence of people 
breaking federal law by, you know, trespassing <laughs> and destruction of property that they are uh, prosecuting accordingly uh, to the crimes that they have committed and have, you know, pictured themselves doing. And I think that is sort of the astounding thing about this is the permission structure that has been building and now exists in this country from the president of the United States for these actions to uh, be taken by them because they think they are above the law because they think they are, uh, I mean, effectively, they fully believe that they are on the right side of history, that they are preventing the United States government from being taken over by some shadow cabal of you know, the deep state. And I, I just think at this point, um, somebody's got to stand up and, and uh, go against this. And I know, Kyle, you have a clip of uh, Governor Kemp. This might be a good time to, to bring up uh, Governor Kemp actually doing an admirable job of condemning uh, what happened uh, today at the United States Capitol. Yeah, I think what's notable about what Governor Kemp said today, um, he did condemn the violence. We'll hear that here in a second. Um, he also gave a warning to members of his own party, people who have been pressuring him about his own actions, upholding the results of the election, um, that if we had ended up in a special session in Georgia, we might have seen a similar scene uh, here in Atlanta. Let's listen to Governor Kemp. It is unimaginable that we have people in our state, in our country, that have been threatening police officers, breaking in to government buildings. This is not the Georgia way, and it is not the way of our country. An individual being shot during the middle of these activities, that I don't even know the details on that, while they were there, is unimaginable. And for those of you that have been calling on a special session, you can now see what that would have looked like. Rudy Giuliani saying, quote, trial by combat, end quote, is simply outrageous. And there is no place for that in our nation. It does seem like there is a growing number of Republicans who are done with this and who I think we'll get to the Senate results here in a minute, but I think the Senate results serve as a good demonstration of how this is not only an affront to our democracy, but it's also becoming really disastrous politics for them. And they're becoming more emboldened to speak out against it. One would have hoped that the threats to our democracy would have been enough to speak out against it. But the fact that they are seeing the downsides of this politics to me is at least a little uh, heartening. So in fact, let's go ahead and dive in on those Senate results. So Democrats did the unthinkable. They actually pulled it off. They won two Senate races. Both John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock are headed to the U.S. Senate, um, defeating Kelly Leffler and David Perdue. And this has huge consequences for Joe Biden's administration. It has huge consequences for finally solidifying some Democratic power in this state. Um, but I want to turn to to y'all on the panel here and just give me your sense of um, how you felt as those numbers come came in and as things started to look really good for for Ossoff and Warnock really fast. We Warnocked our Ossoff. <laughs> Sorry, I've been wanting to say that actually aloud all day because I've been alone all day and I've just texted it to people. Um, it was great to see the results come in. Um, I just experienced a lot of excitement for the first time in almost a year. I saw some young Dems in person and we were socially distanced outside. Nobody freak out. Um, but it was so great to see the results come in. I also, fun fact, tend to watch betting sites more than I watch the polls. Um, and so the betting sites had it called long before we got close. And then um, the scuttlebutt that we were hearing from within the party was that even after they called it for Warnock, that Ossoff had the votes too. They just needed to be counted, but based on projections. So it was exciting. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It was exciting. I, the thing, thing for me is I, as soon as Biden won the state, I was pretty sure that we had a chance to win these runoffs just based off of all the factors I've, I've been talking about. And 
Because the key thing is, and, and this is something I do not think the Republican Party has come to realize, maybe they'll come to realize it after this, is, but it it seems like that at least like Purdue, Loeffler, and the people who ran their campaigns deluded themselves into thinking that Donald Trump actually did win the state of Georgia. <laughs> because everything they campaigned on was based off of getting his supporters to vote again, which they were, I think they were very successful in that. I think they probably got a lot of Trump's voters to vote for them. But the problem with that strategy is that that was a smaller number than the people that voted for Joe Biden. And so for me, when I saw that Warnock and Ossoff were consistently uh, actually outperforming Biden in the metro area and a lot of the really important counties for Democrats in the state. Like I, I knew very early on they were going to win and I had to keep texting all of my friends last night. It's like, I'm pretty sure they've won this thing. And the, the part that was surprising to me was just the fact that they had done so well. Um, cause I, I knew it was possible, but I was in a little bit of denial, uh, about that. Um, so I, I, I felt, you know, very, very happy to see it, especially because and I know we want to get into this more, but just just as like playing my flag down, I've watched Republican campaigns and Democrat campaigns in Georgia for a long time. And I can say, at least for the campaigns that I have paid attention to and seeing, which is just about every single campaign since 2012, this was unquestionably the worst Republican campaigns I have seen. And it's surprising because I would all, I would give Purdue's 2014 performance as one of the best. And so it wasn't a given to me that they would do poorly. Um, so I, I think that's an interesting thing to, to talk about because I think it is... Uh, it says a lot about what the future of the party is um, and the you know future for Warnock, who now is running for re-election immediately uh, in 2022. Poor, poor guy. I'm um, sorry, Rev. Um, you know, this is a great discussion we have to have now. Is he is he still Reverend Warnock or is he Senator Warnock? But that's, you know, we'll, we'll figure that out. Is he Reverend Senator? Senator Sen- Reverend? Senator Reverend, Senator Reverend Warnock. Yeah. Oh, I don't know that's... which way it goes. What's the order? Yeah. we, we Someone needs to ask him. Yeah. I know some of his staffers. I'll text them. Yeah, let's Good figure call. this out. Let's Good get call. to the bottom of it. Maybe we'll have this by Peach the end Fog of the Peach Fog investigates. Um, John. Yeah. Not sure where to go. <laughs> Sorry. Brain where froze. do you want to go, John? Brain froze. Where do um, you want to go, John? I, I kind of like to talk just about um, how surprising this is to me. Uh, I, I hadn't followed the polling as closely as I did for the general. Um I've just been busy with other things. and Which is fit. just a quick note is actually very accurate. Like both yes. in the general no, yeah, and in the yeah. runoff, it actually was I mean, like it, very, it, very accurate. It's continued kind of a trend that we've seen, which is that the only polls that aren't all that accurate are in some states when Trump's on the ballot. Um, but for other states when Trump's on the ballot, they've been pretty accurate. And when Trump's not on the ballot, they've continued to be pretty accurate. Uh, midterms had relatively accurate polling. Uh, all the special elections we've seen, including these, have had pretty accurate polling. Um, also, like the Alabama special election back in 2017 or so, whenever that was, which I think is, I don't know how to explain that really. I don't know what about Trump and what about the certain states where he's polled, where he's performed so differently from the polls. I don't know what's causing that. I think that's a really interesting thing to look into as we go forward. I don't know if this will continue if we see another Trump style Republican. Um, on the ticket at any point, maybe it will. I don't know. Will it happen with a, if there's a conventional Republican candidate for president in 2024, will we see the same thing? I don't know. Uh, so I think that'll be something that's very interesting to see. Uh, but I just, I hadn't followed the polls as tight, as closely as I uh, did for the general. Um, so I got to say, this was a little bit of a surprise to me because I didn't see that relatively late shift uh, in terms of uh, expectations until maybe a day or two beforehand, before the election, when I kind of paid attention to it again and said, oh, this is going to be pretty tight, maybe a lean, uh, a lean for at least for Warnock, if not for Ossoff as well. Um, and I, I'm excited by that. I, I do think that it's just the messaging in the later days of the campaign really did change things. Uh, the campaign was not about, oh, now Democrats will have a trifecta. It, it became a campaign about a referendum on President Trump, which, as y'all have mentioned, he lost in Georgia. Uh, I can't really believe that Purdue and Leffler were buying their own bullshit, that they truly believe that the votes were wrong. I, I find that hard to believe, honestly. I don't. Do y'all think that? I know, Luke, you've said that, that 
That's what well, you believe. Do you well, all agree? No, well, to clarify, I don't believe that, but it just seems like that influenced all their decisions. What I, what I think it is, is they thought that the usual calculus and runoff elections would hold true that whenever there's a runoff election in Georgia, it's all about turnout. And the most important thing is turning out your supporters. And they thought the best way to do that was to agree with Donald Trump and fire up his supporters. The thing I think they um, underestimated and what you're getting at, and I totally agree with you, I think they, I don't think they really lost any votes by joining the Sedition Caucus. I think they irritated Democrat voters and made us feel like that like the Biden victory was at stake. So they just supercharged the Democrat turnout. And the the people I really wish like we could figure out is the people who voted for uh, Biden and Purdue in November. I bet there are some of them that voted for Ossoff and Warnock in January because of that messaging about, you know, the election needing to be overturned um, and the results not being trusted. And something that you did mention there was that historically runoffs have been a way for the dominant party in Georgia to secure a lead, which is why we have such weird runoff rules in general. Uh, we have so many of them. Do y'all think that changes now moving forward? Yeah. Uh, I'm sure somebody's thinking about it. Um, you know, I I want to believe the best for Georgia and the best for our leadership. I guess not the best for, the best in um, I want to think that they have our best interests at heart, but they have proven time and time again that they don't. So I can see them undermining this system that has worked for them, um, possibly even throwing out the baby with the bathwater, right? Actually making it harder on themselves for the sake of at least currently, at least for the next couple of cycles, making it harder for Dems to come you know, from behind and win. Yeah, I think it'll be an interesting uh it'll be interesting to watch this going forward because I wonder if Democrats can tie the efforts that Republicans will make to make it harder to vote in this state to tighten up absentee ballot rules um to give people fewer opportunities to vote early. Uh they'll also draw the districts in a, in a gerrymandered way in a, a special session later in 2021. If Democrats can successfully tie those efforts to the kind of anti-democratic politics that you saw on display in Washington at this riot today, because to me, those two things sort of stem from from a similar core. You know, there are there is a base of the Republican Party that has given up on democracy and doesn't think that elections are valid and thinks that it's okay to have a coup to overturn the election and it's okay to stack the deck of the voting rolls to make it impossible for Democrats to win. And both of those outcomes they would view as good things. And I think Republicans are beginning to see in these two victories in the Senate and in some of the really sharp reactions to the conduct on Capitol Hill today that broadly People who are not committed to this anti-democratic politics are really alarmed by what's happening. And so I do think that serves potentially as a hook for Democrats, uh, for the Democratic Party to stop this trend. Um, the other thing I noticed is the embrace of Trump's conspiracy theories about the vote, I think dovetailed to Democrats favor with a trend in democratic politics that the efforts by Stacey Abrams and other organizers to develop really effective organizing tools and get their voters to the polls. I was really impressed by this really small detail that on election night, Stacey Abrams fair fight group was running TV ads, telling people that if their ballots had gotten rejected, they needed to cure them by Friday um, it, it to me, it showed how advanced this operation has become and how successful it's become in turning out voters. And Republicans made that job a little easier for Democrats by being so extremist in this runoff and making it really difficult for Democrats not to be alarmed at the state of things and deciding to stay home. I think that's why you saw 
increased Democratic turnout in places that lagged a little bit in November because things haven't gotten better since November. Yeah, I, I, I think I think that's definitely true. And th- and this is a point I've been making. I'm going to keep making it until, you know, Kemp puts pen to paper. It is not a sure thing that the Republicans can change the voting laws in a way that is negative. And I think the events of today, their losses in this runoff, I, I, I think I think those could be opportunities for us to do the right thing in Georgia and to make our voting system better and more accessible because, I mean, frankly, the Republicans did not lose because of the opportunity to vote. They lost because their people didn't want to vote. And I I don't think they are going to win a lot of elections on the backs of making it harder to vote, especially when Democrats are winning in places where people who are highly educated, who have good jobs, who can take a couple hours off work to to go vote. And more and more, they're being supported by people who do not fit that criteria. And so if anything, if I'm a GOP consultant, and I know many of them, I would be very terrified by the idea of, of getting rid of no excuse absentee ballots, of shortening early vote periods, because... The current Democrat coalition in Georgia that elected Joe Biden and elected John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock is a coalition of people who will not be as affected by those changes as previous Democrat coalitions in, in Georgia and elsewhere in the country. So that's the first thing. And the other thing is, you know, if this does encourage a conversation about getting rid of our runoffs, I think that would be a great thing because runoffs are a, you know, vestige of the Jim Crow South. On the other hand, there needs to be some viable good alternative that does not result in people being elected with 20% of the vote in the state either. So, you know, hopefully we can look at something like instant runoff voting that like Maine has. Uh, yes, put please. In. Yes, please. Yes. <laughs> or, you know, at the very least, maybe lowering the threshold a little bit for general election. So if you get, you know, 45% of the vote or something, you get elected. I, I don't know. You know, it's, it's, it's definitely worth looking into and thinking about, but not in this like reflexive way of just getting rid of it and not thinking about it anymore, which unfortunately the Republicans in the state tend to do um, sometimes when they when they face uh, challenges to their electoral success. Um, and, and so I, I think that's going to be a really important thing to watch because um, typically the Republican leadership in the state has been... Uh, not as reflexive as a lot of the base members of of their party, and they tend to try to temper uh, these reactions to um, you know uh, events. Because I mean, honestly, that's that's all you can explain it as the, their behavior. Sometimes they just react to things without really thinking about it. Which you know, Democrats do it too. But in Georgia, uh, the consequences are much higher <laughs> than they are uh, uh, you know elsewhere. Let's talk a little bit about the downstream political effects of this for Republicans. I have increasingly found it hard to separate my own personal opinions from my analysis of Kelly Leffler. Um, she made that very difficult at the end of this campaign. But I am left at the end of this campaign thinking that Governor Kemp made an absolutely disastrous political choice in appointing her to the U.S. Senate and setting up this election and it turned out just about as badly as it could have. Am I being too biased there? Or what do you think about the the political ramifications of this choice that, that Governor Kemp made? I, I think you're totally right. Um, you appointed someone who is married to the owner of the New York Stock Exchange, who's not a Georgia native and hasn't even lived here for all that long, who is not an incredibly personable person from what I can tell, uh, who doesn't have any, doesn't have huge connections to the state. She owns the WNBA team here, but her players hate her. Uh, and I, I don't think that's all that new, if I had to guess. Um, I don't know if there's any reporting on that, if this was a thing that happened before the election, but I doubt they've, they were in love with her prior to this. I don't know what her, what the reason for her, I mean, getting into politics or becoming a successful politician is other than she and her husband have a lot of money. Um, she, she's not a natural candidate at all. No. And in fact, I've said this a few times on this show, 
um, Kemp absolutely snubbed Doug Collins with his move. You know, he was the absolute obvious choice. He had been paying his dues. Not only that, he'd been kissing Trump's ass. Um, so he had, you know, he was the likely candidate to have Trump support. And um, somebody said this last night, and I'm just going to throw it out and see what y'all think. Gubernatorial candidate Doug Collins with the endorsement of former President Trump. I don't like it, but it sounds like it could work. Right? <laughs> No, I, and I, I will not be surprised by that. The the so the the one argument I will throw out before jumping on the bandwagon of Kemp making a disastrous choice is you know maybe Kemp was doing some three dimensional chess and he picked a purposely bad candidate so that there would be another big office for someone to run for in twenty twenty two since a Democrat <laughs> won. I am very skeptical that that's what happened, but but the point <laughs> remains though that that is true for him. Because now Doug Collins has that opportunity to run for the Senate, which is the job he seems like he actually really wants, and run against Raphael Warnock. Um, so, you know, it, I think it'll be really interesting because there are a lot of names I've heard thrown around. And I will actually be a little bit surprised if Collins ends up running against uh, Kemp just because of how divisive that would be for the Republican Party. And because he has the opportunity to run for Senate, because he has opportunities in some other offices, he might actually be more interested in just based off of his profile and the things he cares about. So I think that will be really interesting to watch. Um, the thing that I will be fascinating until I die, maybe I will write this book, but whoever writes this book, I will buy many copies of it and spread it to my friends is the thing that I find so fascinating about the Kelly Loeffler decision is the initial calculus of it made so much sense. Like, I thought that Kemp had actually done a smart move here because, like, the Republicans were hurting really, really bad in the suburbs. And so, like, picking a suburban woman sounded like a really good idea, especially compared to Collins, who was... um a very popular but also very right right wing person that like the suburbs very likely could have rejected it's not like a great idea but i think the problem that kemp rang into and loffler rang into immediately was what uh john carolyn was talking about which is the fact that kelly loffler was not a tested candidate at all she had never run for office before and she just you know frankly was not very charismatic um and i think that is just a fact. <laughs> and and Georgia has a very tough political environment. And the thing that would, I thought, prove that to anyone and should have proved that to Kemp is not only, it is like Kemp's own victory. Casey Cagle was going to be the next governor of Georgia for about eight years, I felt like, in the sense that like once deal won and he remained lieutenant governor, Everyone I ever talked to in politics was like, yeah, it's going to be Cagle next. And it wasn't Cagle. And he got beat pretty handily in his own runoff. And even before that, the other senator <laughs> that we have to talk about, or former senator more accurately, David Perdue, um, he also won a primary that a lot of people did not think he should have won against a field of very competent, very popular elected officials in the Republican Party who had been in the party apparatus for a long time. And so the fact that Kent thought that he could pick someone who nobody knew who she was and just like place her in the party and it go well, I, I just don't think that is true because I think it's unquestionable that part of the thing that hurt Kelly Loeffler more than anything else was her mad dash, you know, rush to the right. And I think it is on that basis that Raphael Warnock was able to get so much ahead of her because of the fact that um, she adopted a campaign style that was openly racist, unquestionably, uh, I mean, you know, a few degrees away from proudly racist. And I, I think that would not have been as necessary had she did not, had she not felt so much pressure from Doug Collins, had she not felt so much pressure from the right, that they just did not do anything to account for ahead of time. It's like Kemp was surprised by this, that Loeffler was surprised by this. And that's why they, they ran such a divisive campaign that was, you know, incredibly ineffective, especially in the context of the fact that 
they were running against someone in Raphael Warnock who was significantly more likable. Um, and, and I just think it's astounding the political miscalculation that was made there and is, is worth a <laughs> thorough examination. I'll give some credence to that three-dimensional chess idea in the sense that I think that the calculation of bring in a an attractive female political unknown to bring the suburban moderates, particularly like the, you know, in the Democratic Party, we like to refer to the East Cobb moms, you know, get somebody that looks like the East Cobb moms and get them to kind of trust. You know, we've seen over and over again politicians or, or, you know, systems bring in women to get the women's vote because there's this idea that like, well, of course, women aren't going to vote in a way that's going to harm women, which is complete and utter BS. But for whatever reason, that narrative still kind of seems to pervade, uh, you know, conversations. So, you know, that that could have been part of the calculus. I'll give him some of that. But like, clearly it didn't freaking work. It seems pretty clear to me that if you're making your if you're na- the National Republican Party is making politics entirely about a culture war, which is what they're doing, that you can't have you can't collect both the support of the East Cobb moms who are college educated, generally white, middle to upper class, who are generally socially moderate, at least you can't collect votes from that group of people and from your your base. So I, I don't so if you appoint a East Cobb mom type of person to be the the candidate and I hope that you'll collect their votes, you should know that you're losing the base and you're either going to lose the base or lose that that group. I don't I don't know how they expected, oh she looks like me, so I'll ignore everything that she has to do to maintain the base just because she looks like me. Is it seems a little, they didn't think it out quite as much as they should have. Luke, you want to talk quick about Purdue's performance here? Uh, we noted that he's been absent from the campaign trail, and that's resulted in me actually having a hard time figuring out what to say about him. Yeah, I, I think a big, I think Purdue could have won this election. I think Purdue could have won this runoff. And I think the really, I mean, the funny thing is the thing that got in David Perdue's way was David Perdue. Because we discussed last week, or whenever the last time we recorded, we're kind of in the, like, the time memory hole. Uh, but like Perdue was going out there saying, I won this election. I only, I, you, know, you don't even need to talk about me. Talk about Kelly Loeffler. I won, I won, I won. And I think he probably was seeing polling that made him think that he had won. And after his really bad debate performance after John Ossoff gained a lot of steam in just how badly he smacked David Perdue down, it really just seemed, it really seemed like he was running off the goodwill he had built in his 2014 campaign. And he thought that was enough. And I, I just think really what hurt him more than anything was his absence and that he just throughout his entire term, he was not very available, especially not considered to, you know, compared to Johnny Isaacson. And the really only time I ever saw him was, you know, doing very hackish, very divisive Fox News hits. And just being absent from the campaign, while at the same time Kelly Loeffler is doing all this really divisive, really racist campaigning, and not really landing any good hits on Ossoff, as, as we've mentioned before, the Purdue campaign kind of threw everything and the kitchen sink at Ossoff and none of it really stuck. I mean, their closing argument against him was just completely unbelievable, absurd assertion that he had been paid off by the Chinese Communist Party, which no one either understood or, you know, believed. And I, I think it just wasn't, it wasn't good enough. And he didn't do enough to convince people that the things that Ossoff were saying about him weren't true. And I mean, they were, they are true. <laughs> and so I think that hurt him too. And I, I think the gap really exists in just the fact that Loeffler was not an incumbent. Well, she was an incumbent, but didn't have the same kind of long history. She was a really, really bad candidate. Warnock was really likable. I have a lot of conservative friends and family members Pretty much every single one of them told me, man, I really liked Warnock until I saw all those negative ads, <laughs> which 
which is still a hilarious comment to me. But I think it's true, though. Like, I think there's just a lot of people who just, like, really like Raphael Warnock, and he came off really well in his ads. And I think that gave him a big... His his difference maker was the fact that people liked Purdue in 14. They voted for him in 14. A lot of them wouldn't do it again. And some just couldn't stomach it anymore based off of what was happening, but there was a group, I think, that probably did split their ballots between Warnock and, and Purdue. I, I, I think just Loeffler completely uh, denigrated herself in a way, because the, one one last thing we did not say about her um, that I think is really relevant to this Purdue thing is while Purdue was not very honest in his campaigning. He always came off honest. The The ads I am thinking about in particular, because this is just an objective fact, this is not be, me being a partisan hack. David Perdue had these ads where he looks like your grandfather, and he's looking right to camera, and he's warmly lit, and he's like, of course I support pre-existing conditions. Who doesn't support pre-existing conditions? And that's not true. It's objectively not true. It doesn't matter because he's not a senator anymore. But like it, it, these ads infuriated me to no end because I thought they'd be incredibly effective because he comes off very reasonable and very normal. And you believe him. You believe him when he is saying this. And people that don't look up to you know Senate votes because they have better things to do with their life would believe him. I did not believe a thing that Kelly Loeffler ever said because it like to, it, I really you know maybe she is like as nasty and racist as she campaigned, but I actually don't think that's what she's like. I mean, she and, wouldn't have been selected back in back when she was selected by camp if she was right. Right, I agree, and so like, we this would is, hope you would hope you you hope that would not be why Kemp chose her. Um, but like you know like when Collins would say similar things, like he comes off just like likable and authentic and like. That like yeah, common sense, you know, salt of the earth kind of people. Whereas like Loeffler is just so scripted and robotic. Yeah, and, and and so it's just like, and this is not a problem that like Karen Handel had, or you know, a lot of other Republican female candidates. Like this is very unique to Loeffler that she just did not seem to actually believe anything she was trying to sell us. And so I I think the fact that Purdue had that established record and established that conservatives liked him is a big reason why Ossoff didn't do as well, and it's a big reason why um, Loeffler did significantly worse. And then the the last thing I would say, too, as, you know, from just a purely hackish thought, is that I think Ossoff probably was hurt a little bit from being the guy that ran in the congressional runoff. You know, I, I, I would say if you were adding up all the costs and benefits of him running that congressional, he obviously gained far more by actually running that race. He would not be U.S. Senator had he not run that race. But for some voters, I'm sure, that made them have different thoughts about him because, and we've talked about this a lot, I'll continue talking about it because I'm sure he will continue to grow. Um, You know, he's going to be the first millennial senator. He ran that congressional race. He was very young for a lot of candidates and he grew a lot in the interim between that race. But I think there's a lot of people, uh, in the national media I've already complained about, but also in Georgia who like looked into John Ossoff during that first race, were not impressed and they just stayed unimpressed and they didn't take the time to like look into him more. And so they kind of just made some assumptions. And so I think for all those factors that that gap, um, makes a lot of sense to me and i think the i hope the moral of the story for republicans are like you can't just phone again in georgia you have to actually campaign and maybe don't campaign in a super racist super divisive way because it's not good politics and it just makes you look bad and so i i hope that if any even if we don't keep them from making a lot of changes to our election laws i hope that they at least take it away from these races that this is just bad campaigning in the state of Georgia and you shouldn't do it and it won't be successful. Luke, what you mentioned about uh, David Perdue's pre-existing conditions ad in the final weeks of the campaign, I had actually forgotten about those ads uh, largely because of his disappearance from the campaign trail and because the whole campaign seemed to shift towards this stolen election conspiracy theory narrative. And that actually, I think, seeded the ground on a positive policy vision, like a reason to vote for somebody as opposed to voting against somebody. That ground was almost entirely ceded to the Democrats. And and we talked before about 
John Ossoff being a sharp campaigner on policy. But I thought it was notable that on Monday, uh, President-elect Joe Biden was in Atlanta to do his final rally for the two Democrats, and he made the policy stakes of this race really explicit. Let's listen to what Joe Biden had to say. If you send John and the Reverend to Washington, those $2,000 checks will go out the door, restoring hope and decency and honor for so many people who are struggling right now. And if you send Senators Perdue and Loeffler back to Washington, those checks will never get there. It's just that simple. The power is literally in your hands. By electing John and the Reverend, you can break the gridlock that has gripped Washington and this nation. With their votes in the Senate, we'll be able to make the progress we need to make on jobs, on health care, on justice, on the environment, on so many important things. By electing John and the Reverend, you'll be voting to get the states the resources they need to get the vaccines distributed. It's a shame what's happening now. A Democratic campaign that brings in the Democratic president to talk about what a Democratic president and a Democratic Senate could do, and that being central to a Georgia political campaign. We are a long way from 2014. I, I cannot imagine us being further <laughs> where Jason Carter and Michelle Nunn, uh, both you know two people I really like and respect, uh, could not have ran further away from uh, the current Democratic president at that time, Barack Obama. Um, I, I, I think that does really, really highlight, I know we're trying to talk about positives, I swear, this will, I hope, will be the last time I talk about the negatives, but like, Ossoff was running a bunch of ads talking about like, these are the things we can do, you know, if we win, we will do all these things, or at least push for them, and fight for these things, where uh, there was a complete absence on Purdue's side, especially, of that positive message of like what he wanted to do or even just like i want to be a check on the democrats like the only thing he ran was that china ad uh the whole time uh in that in those last couple weeks where he completely disappeared um and i just think that just didn't work for the you know for for georgians they voted for joe biden they wanted joe biden to get stuff done and that is what john ossoff spent his entire ending of his campaign talking about was he's gonna get stuff done and fight to get the stuff done that Joe Biden wants to get done. And and I think that was just really, really good uh, campaigning on his part. The other shift I noticed, I always forget the order, so I have to have this handy sign available, um, is the the like slogan he adopted of health, jobs, and justice. Um, you know, like that became the focus of every speech that, you know, Ossoff was giving. Because I, I watched a lot of speeches that both Warnock and Ossoff gave and like that was a real shift I noticed is that he just like became very very focused on those three things and you know just making it really simple about like this is what it's about and I think that focus was successful for them obviously since he's going to be senator you know John Ossoff very soon um and I I I was very I I I agree with you it is insane just how far we've come from 2014 where Jason Carter and Michelle Nunn were fully supportive of Medicaid expansion, but they were very cautious on just about every other uh, Democrat policy that was like in the news at that time. And I, I just think it's, it is incredible how far we've come. And I think it is just the things we've learned since that race uh, and the work that's been done on the ground um, has, has been incredible. And I, I'm very excited <laughs> to see what they're going to do um, in, in that office. Megan, does that feel like a sustainable path forward to you? I'm I'm struck by you know this is a, a celebratory moment for Democrats sending the electoral votes for Joe Biden, sending two Democratic senators to Washington. Republicans still maintain total control of state government, and Democrats have a long way to go in securing power and need to do so to make changes on the state level. Does this you know solutions focused positive campaign approach? Does that feel like a sustainable path forward to you? It does. Um, and I don't know whether that's me being just willfully naive or whether it is legitimately sustainable, but I have gone on record on the show saying before that I really don't like campaigns or anything that focuses on the negative, right? And so typically what I mean by that is I don't like attack ads. But what I also mean by that is 
this idea that I want a campaign and I want people in leadership who are focusing on hope. Now, do we get that super often in Georgia? Not really. But honestly, what we get in Georgia is just it, it I find the campaigns are way less dynamic on the state level than the federal level. So, you know, as far as the hope thing goes, um, you know, that gets kind of discussed in um, in chambers um, or or in um, in hearings for bills. But I want to believe that having leadership at the top of our government, at the federal level, being hopeful and working toward better things for the people and working honestly toward more progressive ideals um, is is a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's what the Republicans, at least at the start of the campaign, were running on before it switched to we need to help Trump win the election still somehow. Before it switched to that, the plan was run on saying that we don't want Democrats to have full control over Congress and the White House so we can stop them from doing things. So they'll do nothing because that's what we want. We want a world where for the next two years, if not four, nothing happens in the country politically. That's kind of what they were campaigning for. And if you can present a message of a hopeful world about what you can do and show that those are good things, and Mitch McConnell helped a ton with this, that's a huge message for that the Democrats can make that, that both campaigns use saying, we will do these things that will help you. We'll give specific things, things that we can do. And I'll promise that at the very least, the checks are going to go out as soon as we're in office saying, I can guarantee this is going to happen. You know it. It's what's happening in the news. The news is showing this. Uh, that's what all the political debate or many of the political debates going on across the country are about the checks. And if you're the one who can say, I myself can do this. You're this one vote will give you a $2,000 check. It will cause actual change. That's huge. The The other thing that I think will be very interesting to watch, and I think a lot of people could be underestimating, is we're going to have a Democratic senator from the state of Georgia for six years. <laughs> Unless something horrible and strange happens. John Ossoff will, will be there for six years. And that's a thing that Democrats have not had for a really long time. I, it, my memory is usually pretty good. I think Zell Miller was our last Democratic senator and he became a Republican uh, near the end of his term. So like, does that even count? Um, but like John's going to be in there for a while. And the thing I, I really hope he does and based off of how he ran his campaign, I expect he will, is like he will do things that are noticeable and that people will pay attention to. Because I pay attention to politics. I try to pay attention to the Republicans in the state just as much as the Democrats. And I really can't tell you much of what David Perdue did in office besides, you know, use his influence to, you know, make stock changes and make a bunch of money. Whereas, like, when Johnny Isaacson was still in there, like, I knew what he was up to. Like, I didn't follow him every day, but, like, I paid attention. And, like, he was doing, you know, some great work for the state. And he had great constituent services. And he, he was around and at events and visible and clearly a leader of the state. You know, you can argue... As I have many times, he was not pursuing policies always that I liked, but he clearly enjoyed the state of Georgia. He liked being a senator. He liked being around its people, and he even worked with the Democratic delegation members. And I think Ossoff has an opportunity to do the same thing, to be a resource to the Republicans in the House, as wacky as some of them are. Uh, you know, he, he can do that, and he can be a leader for the state, and I think having that example from both Warnock and Ossoff, I, I, I focus on Ossoff just because he has the six-year term and he's going to be able to be there longer, where Warnock, unfortunately, is going to have to go like right into campaign mode again and, soon. And midterm election, too. Right, in a, in a midterm, which is always harder, especially when the president is of your same party and you're in a competitive state. Um, I, I think, I hope that that will give people an example of like what Democrats actually want to do, because one problem I've had... So often when I've tried to talk to some of my more conservative friends about Democrats in the state of Georgia is that they just like go to AOC or Nancy Pelosi and it's just like, this isn't California. This isn't New York. Like the Democrats are different and their, their priorities are different and the things that they want to get done are different on many issues 
And it's usually the issues those folks are concerned about. And so having that example of like, you know, John Ossoff is not crazy. Raphael Warnock's not crazy. Like they're doing good stuff that I agree with, or at least understand, even if people don't agree with. I think that is really hard to underestimate, like just how much that might help the party in other places, because it makes it a lot clearer what democratic leadership is going to be, because unless people just don't pay attention, which unfortunately happens a lot, like they might notice that like John Ossoff is not like, you know, led some riot revolution somewhere or, you know, isn't constantly getting, you know, voguing on things that help China, you know? So it's just like, I, I think when the tempers die down he, and he's having an opportunity to build a foundation and hopefully Warnock will be successful in 2022 and get to do the same thing, I really think that could have some good trickle-down effects to the party and allow people to understand that Democrats getting elected is not the end of the world, which genuinely a lot of people in the state believe. And having Democrats who are proud to be Democrats getting elected. Like we saw in, in Alabama with Doug Jones, it was a weird election. So I think a lot of that has to be discounted. But he ran on, I'm a Democrat, but I'm not really like one of them. He says, I'm an Alabama, like I'm from Alabama. I agree that with some of their things about, especially about uh, racial justice issues that he's worked on in his career, but I'm not going to fall in line with the party elites. That was kind of his whole message. Here we have Democrats who are campaigning with the president or president-elect that are proud to be Democrats that are saying, yes, I'm a Democrat and we're going to, I'm going to follow the Democratic agenda, not the agenda that many of the Democrats further to the left are pushing necessarily, but the mainstream Democratic Party agenda and being proud of that, which is something to see from Georgia, for sure. Megan, earlier in the pod, we uh, promised an investigation into what the official title for our Senator-elect Raphael Warnock should be. What should our listeners call Mr. Warnock? So I have this unofficially, so don't at me. Um, but um, also, I'm going to keep the staffer anonymous who sent this to me, uh, so that way they don't... Uh, get any flack if this was supposed to be a surprise or something. But um, Senator Reverend Warnock is what this staffer believes it will be. So Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock. That makes sense. I agree with this. Works, I agree yeah. with that Sen- too. Senator-elect Raphael Warnock. Uh, yeah, Senator-elect Reverend doesn't Sen- work out Senator-elect well. Reverend. <laughs> it's so hard. All right, Senator-elect. <laughs> yeah, go. Sen- Senator-elect Reverend. It's, it's the two R's. Keep this whole thing just, in. Just, leave it, whole in. Thing in. just yeah. leave it in. Just leave it in. Senator-elect Reverend Raphael Warnock coming to a singing near you. <laughs> that is a mouthful. Yes, it is. Um, yes, please become singer quicker. Right? Right. Right. Make our lives easier. Get sworn in already. Yeah, well, typically you go with the honorary title that is used by the fewest number of people, right? And there are quite a number of reverends, so it makes sense that he would, you know, stick with Senator and put that first and then from henceforth be known as Senator Reverend Warnock or Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock. But uh, yeah, so there we go. We what happens it. if he starts getting more and more titles to add on? It'll become like a almost like a monarchy, British monarchy thing. You got fifty oh, or sixty. God, we just only use the first one. Well, I think we only use the major, right? Because we've got you know yeah. Obama, right? Dropped senator when yeah. he became president, and so that's so. So let's say Warnock runs for president. He will be President Reverend Raphael Warnock. Wow, that's hard to say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Please stay a senator, Raphael Warnock. Let, ah. us, let us manage <laughs> your career. Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock, please just stay a senator. <laughs> make it easy hard. for us. That's all we're asking. Right? I am, um, in, in closing here, I am a little struck by, to me, Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock is actually a more natural heir to a seat held by Johnny Isaacson than Kelly Leffler is. Uh, Warnock comes off as somebody deeply committed to their faith and deeply committed to this state and somebody who seems a little bit above politics in a way that Johnny Isaacson seemed a little bit above the worst of of partisan politics in our state. I think it's worth noting that in his speech, one of the statements he made was, I'll work for all Georgians. And while you may not agree with the work that Senator Isaacson did, it was pretty clear that he was working for Georgia and all Georgians, not just his base. And that is such a stark difference from Kelly Leffler, who was obviously so nakedly political in all of her calculations through her 
brief tenure as our senator, it makes me feel a little bit better about uh, Reverend Warnock taking this seat. And I think it's worth closing with one more final word from the Senator Reverend, um, noting the historical significance of his ascension to the U.S. Senate. I come before you tonight as a proud American and as a son of Georgia. My roots are planted deeply in Georgia soil. A child who grew up in the Caton Homes housing projects of Savannah, Georgia, number 11 out of 12 children, a proud graduate of Morehouse College and the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, the spiritual home of Martin Luther King Jr. and Congressman John Lewis, a son of my late father who was a pastor, a veteran, and a small businessman, and my mother who as a teenager growing up in Waycross, Georgia, used to pick somebody else's cotton. But the other day, because this is America, the 82-year-old hands that used to pick somebody else's cotton went to the polls and picked her youngest son to be a United States Senator. So I come before you tonight as a man who knows that the improbable journey that led me to this place in this historic moment in America could only happen here. So Reverend Senator Raphael Warnock, part of the long history of the state of Georgia, uh, we're sending him to Washington, y'all. Yes, and I, I, I wanted to look this up too for for this exact issue to see which second seat he was holding, just, just to point out the fact that it's incredible that Less than a hundred years ago, this seat was held for nearly thirty year, over thirty years by Walter F. George, who was a staunch, staunch segregationist, very, very, very racist individual, and then followed up by the equally racist Herman Talmadge, who held the seat for about the same amount of time, and or a little bit, a little bit less than thirty years. So. It's a staying on the nation that we're hopefully starting to wipe away that we've had so few elected black senators in the country. And I'm you know, very proud of my state that we, we are one that has, uh, you know, uh, passed that barrier and passed that first. And so I am sure the senator-elect Reverend Raphael Warnock will do great things and um, will outshine those uh, previous senators by, by miles, even if his term only lasts two years. It'd be twice as long as Kelly Leffler's. <laughs> oh! <laughs> and on that note, I think that's where we're going to end it today. Luke Boggs, thank you for joining the podcast. Go dogs. Go dogs. Megan Payne, thank you as always. Cheer for our dogs, please. Uh, sure. Sounds good. I think maybe the trick with Raphael Warnock's <laughs> name is Senator, pause, Reverend Raphael Warnock. Okay, so let's take the last thing and out. squish them all into one word. Yes. Like, okay. like, yeah. I was teeing you up to let you dunk on us with your tigers, but we'll let that go. Oh, I fuck the tigers right now. <laughs> That's true. It was a rough year. John Carolyn, thank you yep. for, for joining the podcast. It was great to have you back. Thank you all for having me back on. I'm just getting ready to go and watch this overtime of this LSU Georgia game. Ah, go dogs. All righty, dogs. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for tuning into Peach Pod. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, take care, y'all.